Good morning, Perch Church community, and greetings from Buffalo, New York. It's very windy and rainy here today, and the wind has been rattling our windows in this very old house, so hopefully that doesn't disrupt us too much. I'm really glad to be with you this way this morning. Um, thank you to Al and the leadership team for inviting me to share with you. So today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week and the end of Lent. Some of you may be eager for Easter Sunday to come so that you can end the fast that you've been participating in and finally eat some chocolate or whatever it is that you gave up. I hope that your Lenten fast journey has been a valuable time of spiritual growth. If you're like me, things haven't felt very Eastery lately. Between the ongoing pandemic and how it's forced us to set aside our fun traditions like the Easter bunny and jelly beans and getting dressed up for church, having brunch, we're not able to get together with our friends or family like we normally might. We've had plenty of jelly beans in our house, actually. So with those things canceled, as well as on top of that, the deeply painful events in our nation lately, including the rise in horrific violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, which I'm going to address later on. But with all these things going on, celebrating a holiday like Easter isn't exactly on my mind. And today, Palm Sunday is often celebrated with cute little kids walking up and down the aisles of church, waving palm branches, an adorable scene to be sure that I do enjoy. But without these traditions to mark the occasion, it doesn't feel very Eastery. But I think the palm events of Palm Sunday and Holy Week are actually very fitting for our current emotions. And we may actually relate to the events of Jesus' final week before the resurrection in a different way this year, in the midst of our disrupted traditions. And I would encourage you at some point this week to take some time to sit down and read straight through at least one of the four gospel narratives about Jesus' final week before his crucifixion. If you need help finding those stories, I'm sure Al would point, be glad to point you in the right direction. You're probably somewhat familiar with the story of Palm Sunday, which is sometimes called the triumphal entry. It's the week before Jesus' crucifixion, and he arrives into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people are waving palm branches to welcome him. The story is told in each one of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each telling the story, um, and each telling of the story is very similar with a few different details in each, in each book. We'll look a bit closer at some of these different details, but first I want to read the story as it's told in the Gospel of Mark. So this is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> as they, the disciples and Jesus, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people started at, standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. 
Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. And since it, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The first thing I want us to notice about this story is how very theatrical it is, right? Jesus creates a very calculated and intentional scene for his entrance into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. He tells his disciples what to do, where to go, get the donkey, what to say, where to bring it. Every detail is intentional and creates a scene that would be impossible for the onlookers to misinterpret. This type of scene is one that the crowds would have seen before. It was a scene reserved for important people, especially kings or rulers. So Jesus has just crossed through the gate of Jerusalem. So, right, the city of Jerusalem has this wall all the way around it, protecting it, and people had to go through the gate in order to get into the city, and they had to register at the gate. They had to get their paperwork in order, if you will, before entering into this important city. Now, a ruler or king would have been given a very formal, grand, ceremonial entrance to the city where people would acknowledge their presence and give them a formal greeting of honor. This would have included the ruler riding in on a horse or a donkey or a camel. They would have been so that they would have been raised above the crowds on their on their mount, whatever they're riding, and cloaks would have been laid in front of their path, sort of like a red carpet greeting. So in Jesus' performance, he has likened himself to a king. And yet his display of his kingship is somewhat comedic. He's created a satire. First of all, I don't know about you, but I find, I find donkeys amusing in the first place. Now, a donkey in itself was a very common form of transportation in Jesus' day. Nothing fancy about a donkey. Lots of people rode them. But it was, and still is, it's a beast of burden. It's built for its functional carrying ability and in no way has any majestic or attractive features. Even the sound that donkeys make is amusing and unattractive. So Jesus chooses a donkey for his royal entrance into Jerusalem. Not just any donkey, but a baby donkey, a colt. I want you to picture a full-grown man riding on a donkey. I'm gonna give you a picture actually. Here's a picture for you of a full grown man riding a donkey. This is Nicolas Cage. I think he was filming for some kind of movie. But it's really amusing, right? You've got this full grown man, just picture this Jesus as this full grown Middle Eastern man riding a young donkey. I mean, compared to riding a horse, a human riding a donkey is already an awkwardly disproportioned balancing act yet alone a full-grown man riding on a baby donkey. Jesus' feet may have actually been dragging on the ground. There's nothing majestic or royal about it. This satire, that's this scene that Jesus has created, is meant to highlight the differences between Jesus' kingship from the type of earthly king the people were used to witnessing. And so this triumphal entry is amusing. It's remarkable because the Son of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, displays his glory and power by arriving into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
How do the onlookers respond? Are they laughing? No, they respond with praise, with shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Listen to that phrase again. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. It's clearly a political phrase. The coming kingdom of our father, David. And they say, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Matthew says they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Again, highlighting Jesus as a descendant of King David, even pointing to him as being the long-awaited heir to David's throne. And in Luke, they shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in the Gospel of John, Blessed is the king of Israel. So these people know in this moment that Jesus is the king. These are the people who have witnessed Jesus' miracles. They've heard the stories of how he has healed the sick, how he raised the dead. They've heard how the, this man who, they've heard of the man who fed 5,000 people. They've heard of the man who touches lepers and eats meals with sinners. And they've come to see for themselves this man whose miracle performing power is displayed through humility and sacrifice. And even with all of this humility, they recognize that Jesus is king. There's other people watching, however, and their response to Jesus' display is not one of praise. In fact, they are deeply offended by what Jesus is implying through this scene. It's the Pharisees, the educated, highly religious and pious, they're rigid in their religious practices and expectations of what it means to be a good Jew. And they are deeply confident in their interpretation of the scriptures and of what the prophecies say will happen when the Messiah or heir to David's throne comes. And this is not it in their minds. Here is this radical teacher, just a carpenter's son from Nazareth, who's been stirring up trouble for them all throughout the countryside, and he's come into their city, their city, with this satirical display of his kingship, implying that he is the one who's going to bring the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees are boiling over with rage, to the point that they begin their plot to kill him. The Gospel of John says the Pharisees say, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And in Luke, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. To which Jesus replies, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The whole scene is extremely political, as Jesus' display of royalty is in severe contrast to the power and might, the wealth and most that wealth that most likely included weapons that a king of the day would have displayed. It's a statement about what is truly powerful. Jesus says power is not found in these things. Rather, power is found in humility, in the merciful love of someone who eats with sinners and embraces people the world dares not touch. The people, especially the Pharisees, were anticipating a king who would come and restore power to the nation of Israel. After centuries of exile and now coexisting in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people were hungry for what they saw as their rightful place of power 
as the rulers of the promised land. And in their mind, this should involve a military-led overturn of political authority. But it's in this moment of Jesus' humble, humble, triumphal entry on the back of a baby donkey that signals the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God for the last several years. And now, through the events of Holy Week, the kingdom of God is going to come and reign on earth. And the type of power that this kingdom is going to be defined is the the type of power of this kingdom is going to be defined in three important ways through the next week. The first way is his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, will be a kingdom of steadfast peace. Even in the face of extreme violence, Jesus' kingdom will be defined by a peaceful resistance to abuses of power. And second, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, will be defined by unmerited mercy. Because not a single one of these people, from the ordinary person in the crowd to the Pharisees to the Roman guards, not one of them deserve the mercy that Jesus extends to them. And third, Jesus' kingdom will be defined by unconditional love. There's nothing that these people could have done to stop Jesus from going to the cross. This is the depth of his love. And it's through the power of this steadfast peace, unmerited mercy, and this unconditional love that Jesus will conquer over death and sin, and we will all have access into the kingdom of God through forgiveness of sin. So if this is true, If 2,000 years ago, Jesus initiated the kingdom of God here on earth, why is there still so much sin? Why still so much undeniable abuses of power? I've heard it recently defined, the kingdom of God defined as, what would happen on earth if God's will were done in every person's life? If the will of God were done in every circumstance. And I look around and I feel so hopeless by the things happening in this world that I have to wonder if the kingdom God, kingdom of God is actually here at all. I began writing this sermon the day after the shootings in Atlanta last week. I'm going to take the next few minutes to talk about the shooting and racialized violence against the Asian American Pacific Islander community. If you're in a place right now where you just don't want to talk about it, don't want to hear about it, press mute. I'm going to talk for the next five minutes, take a break. I'm not offended. I know there are times when the best thing for my own emotional well-being is I need to take space away from these conversations. I have to admit that coming before the Lord to prepare a message like this in the midst of so much emotional upheaval has not been easy. So many in our perch community are Asian Americans. I am not, clearly. And I know I will never truly know what it feels like to carry the fear and pain of racial violence that's so prevalent in this country. In my years of dating and being married to Jerome, these issues have become more personal, more real, and the pain and fear associated with racism has become my own to a degree. And as we have processed these recent events together, we've brought to mind Jerome's relatives who are elderly, as many of the recent victims have been elderly. And we're grateful that his parents live in the Philippines, 
where we don't have to worry about this kind of hatred happening to them. In this last week, I have felt the fear and pain on a different level. I imagine most of us have because the shooting was horrific. But particularly for me, with the coming of our daughter, I can't tell with this camera angle, but I am six months pregnant. This hits close to home in a new way. My daughter is a part of me in a different way, quite literally right now, she is in my own body. And I'm afraid for her future. I'm feel fearful of my own inadequacies as a white mother to know how to relate to her, how to prepare her and protect her. And I am angry, angry at so many in the world who ignore and are silent about these issues and especially angered by the gaslighting and silence of the American church. And even as I collapsed in my grief and tears in the middle of the kitchen floor the morning after the shooting, I still know my pain is only a fraction of what our Perch community are experiencing. In these last weeks, I've been angry at the inadequate response of so many of the law enforcement, government, and church leaders have had. I wanted to read to you a portion of the response from the Asian American Christian Collaborative because I think their words do an especially appropriate job of calling out and naming the layers of sin. So these are their words. The Asian American Christian Collaborative condemns and denounces the violence committed in the Atlanta massacre on March 16th, 2021. We call Christians and church leaders to make a clear and urgent response condemning this heinous act of hate. And we invite all Americans to work toward the dignity and respect of Asian and Asian American lives, especially women. Despite the shooter having been reported to yell, I am going to kill all the Asians and to place the blame for killing people on his sex addiction, Cherokee County authorities described the shooter as being pretty much fed up and at the end of his rope and that he had a really bad day and this is what he did. In the end, the shooter's bad day led to the massacre of four people in one location, followed by a 30 mile drive to another two places where he committed the same tragic act. The suspect's actions suggest a deliberate, preconceived plan to target Asians and particularly Asian women. Further, the shooter was a professing Christian. He was baptized at the age of eight, and after referencing the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, he was rebaptized in 2018. Among other things, he's reported to love guns and God an alliance often documented to be associated with Christian nationalism, and his youth pastor could not, quote, recall any sermons dealing specifically with racism by the church. There are so many layers to the evil surrounding this event. Racism, sexism, misogyny, the historical fetishization of Asian women, to name just a few. What I want to call out today is the way this man's Christian heritage influenced his actions. Sinful structures of the church, which have influenced and perpetuated violence and and racism and sexism, such as this, need to be addressed. And so often churches are silent 
we sweep these things under the rug. Maybe something small is said in a prayer, but more often than not, the church, especially the white American evangelical church, participates in gaslighting people of color at the very least. We've been talking a lot about spiritual abuse in the church through the great webinars that Al has organized and this kind of gaslighting of the experience of racism by people of color as they at the hands of both Christian leaders and congregants is just one form of spiritual abuse. So what does the story of Palm Sunday have anything to do with these horrific current events and decades, if not centuries, of power abuses in the church? Actually, a lot. There's this tiny detail noted in the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. His destination is to the religious institution. I find this extremely interesting, and it's an often overlooked part of the story of the Palm Sunday narrative. What would Jesus have seen there in the temple, this temple being the very center of Jewish religious worship of the day? Well, he would have seen abuses of power which are painfully similar to what we experience in the Christian church today. In walking up the steps of the temple, he would have passed by those who were disenfranchised by society, either from physical illness or disability. People who were in severe poverty would be found begging at the foot of the temple, at the steps of the temple, and society gave them no other option for surviving. Jesus would then enter into the temple and pass by people who were taking advantage of people's guilt and their need to make a sacrifice to find restoration before God, and they would be extorting the poor and overcharging for sacrificial animals. Jesus would then have passed by the court of women, the section of the temple reserved for women where they could not go any further into the court of sacrifice or near the Holy of Holies. This part of the temple was not in the original design of the tabernacle, as described in Exodus. In other words, the second temple Judaism was strongly influenced by patriarchal abuses that limited women's experience in worship. Similarly, Jesus would have passed by the court of Gentiles, the section of the temple where those who were not circumcised, foreigners, immigrants, people who were not like the Jewish people, and yet desired to come and worship Yahweh. Similar to the court of women, the court of Gentiles was not included in the original blueprints of the tabernacle and is a far cry from Yahweh's desire that the nation of Israel would be a blessing to all nations. The covenant promise in Genesis was that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Israel. All people from all nations and ethnicities would be equally invited to participate in the community of God's people. The ethnocentric nature of how the Jewish people had, had become was obvious through this added court of the Gentiles, this divided space for them, compartmentalize them, put them over there. And we see this same ethnocentrism in the relationship with the Samaritans in many, many stories throughout the Gospels. Jesus would have then gone into the court of men. And I can imagine him locking eyes with the high priest, the one whose position of power provides so much authority over all of these people. And this same high priest, who in just a few days will hand Jesus over to be murdered and who will watch Jesus' crucifixion with extreme satisfaction. And I can imagine Jesus, the very 
holy presence of God Almighty looking at the curtain which separated the people from the holy of holies and the space where God's presence dwelt among them and knowing he would know, Jesus would know looking at that curtain that humanity was clearly in desperate need of a direct and unlimited access to the throne of God. And what's Jesus' response to what he sees? Luke's gospel tells it this way. This is the message translation. When the city came into view, Jesus wept over it. If you had only recognized this day, Jesus said, and everything that was good for you, but now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery and surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. Not one stone will be left intact. All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. And Jesus goes into the temple. He began to throw out everyone who had set up shop, selling everything and anything. And he said, it is written in scripture, my house is a house of prayer and you have turned it into a religious bazaar. So Jesus' first response to this sin, this abuse of power, is lament, grief. Jesus is overwhelmed by grief. He's grieved by the sin of God's people, the hypocrisy found within the walls of Jerusalem, and the hypocrisy of religious leaders. Jesus looks at how the nation of Israel is functioning. He looks at how the temple is functioning, and he's deeply grieved because this is not what God had in mind for his chosen people. It's deeply upsetting to see Jesus, for Jesus to see how sinful abuses of power have taken over and God's people are functioning in apathetic sin. I find comfort in knowing that even in my moments of being crumpled on the floor of my kitchen, overwhelmed by grief from the evil in the world, Jesus is there with me in that grief. Jesus is also deeply grieved by the sinful wreck of humanity and the pain we cause each other over and over again. The next thing Jesus does is he prophesies over the city of Jerusalem. He speaks words of destruction over Jerusalem, this being the center, the capital of the nation of Israel. Jesus grieves over the destruction that Jerusalem is going to face in the years to come because of their disobedience and rejection of Jesus himself. This kind of destructive judgment over the city is not God's desire. It's a consequence of the people's sin, and it breaks Jesus' heart to know what suffering his people are going to face in the coming years. The next thing Jesus does is he actively addresses the injustices happening in the temple. This is where righteous anger takes over and Jesus begins throwing tables, sending the people who were extorting the poor out of the temple saying, this is what the t- is not, this is not what the temple is for. This is not what you are supposed to be doing in God's house. This is not how God is to be worshipped. And the next thing Jesus does is over the next days, Luke says, he taught each day in the temple. And the high priests, the religion scholars, and the leaders of the people were trying their best to find a way to get rid of him. But with the people hanging on every word he spoke, they couldn't come up with anything. 
Jesus stands his ground and continues teaching. And his teaching is radical and disruptive. It's offensive to the Pharisees. Much of Jesus' teaching proclaims a kingdom that is upside down and backwards to what they have expected. Several times Jesus actually says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you something completely different than what you have been taught by the religious leaders. The final thing that Jesus does is he remains obedient to the Father and he goes to the cross. Because the truth which Jesus reveals through these words of prophecy is that when the kingdom of God comes, the kingdom of evil does not last long. In the days that follow, Jesus will take the ultimate step to destroy the power of the kingdom of evil through his death and resurrection. And as this kingdom of steadfast peace unmerited mercy and unconditional love begins to infiltrate humanity the walls of evil and the power structures of power structures of evil will begin to crumble in the days ahead this humble king will be mocked they will mock his kingship with a crown of thorns and a sign above his head reading king of the jews It's an extremely political statement that implies this kingdom that Jesus has been preaching has no power. Jesus is weak. And yet in the days ahead, this kingdom of steadfast peace, unmerited mercy, and unconditional love will prove itself the most powerful kingdom of all. This still brings me to my question of why there is still so much sin. If the kingdom of God is here, why are there still so many power abuses? We exist in this in-between stage of the kingdom of God where God has already come through Christ. The kingdom of God is already here through King Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross and his conquering over sin and death, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is here. And yet God's kingdom cannot be fully here because we still see so much sin around us. It is this mysterious and frustrating already here and not yet here phase. The best thing I have to compare this to right now is my pregnancy. My daughter is already here on earth. There is no doubt that she is alive and growing. I have felt her moving inside of me since I was 16 weeks along. And now at 25 weeks, I've had about nine weeks of kicks and somersaults and hiccups. But she's also not yet here. We still have about 15 weeks to wait for her birth. And until then, we will continue to wait. And I will wait with a great deal of discomfort. Waiting for baby for me has not been fun most of the time. Some people really love being pregnant and waiting for their baby to come, but I have to admit, I am extremely impatient. I had horrible, horrible morning sickness and fatigue for my first 18 weeks of pregnancy. That's about six weeks longer than most people experience, and it was brutal. And I thank God that I'm healthy, but guys, pregnancy is no joke. And in the waiting for the arrival of our baby girl, these side effects of pregnancy are truly exhausting. And yet in the middle of the night, when I wake up to my daughter kicking my very full bladder, I can't help but smile because this is a sign that she is growing and coming. She's already here and she is coming. 
And there's so much more growing that she's going to do after she is born. Now, of course, my analogy and comparison of pregnancy to the waiting for the full arrival of the kingdom of God is limited. But I pray that in our waiting, in the midst of so much pain, that we would be able to see more evidence of the hope of the kingdom that is already here through small glimpses in our day-to-day life, like the smile or kind words of a stranger just when we need it, to the bigger picture things such as the progress that has been made with civil rights, that through big and small moments, that as we hold on to this steadfast peace of Christ's kingdom through our own actions of peace, as we extend unmerited grace to those who wrong us, as we embody unconditional love to every person in our life, I pray that we would begin to see signs of the life of the kingdom of God, which is already here and is still coming soon. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your hope, the hope of your kingdom, the hope of your promises. I pray, King Jesus, that you would come and transform us with your peace, with your mercy, with your love in new ways today. Help us, Lord, in each day, in each moment, in our grief, in our lament. Help us, Lord, when we are scared. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to stand boldly in the truth and the power of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.